We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, everyone, and welcome to part two of the Brian Cashman story, a history episode of the Bronx Pinstripe Show. If you haven't already done so, go check out episode one. We released that yesterday. But we left off with the Yankees in a bit of a transition. Joe Torre, who had been manager for 12 seasons, four of which ended with a ring, was not brought back after another playoff exit in 2007. A-Rod signed a brand new massive contract. The clubhouse culture needed a change. Joe Girardi was hired, and Cashman was taking the team in a clear direction. Let's get into it. Part 5. Changing the Story The 2008 season did not go as planned. By the time September came around, people bought tickets not to watch the team play, but to say goodbye to the old Yankee Stadium. Despite the team finishing in third place and missing the playoffs for the first time in 15 years, it wasn't all doom and gloom. The Yankees actually had a farm system to be proud of for the first time in, coincidentally, 15 years. Jabba Chamberlain was the number three overall prospect in baseball. Notable names like Clayton Kershaw, David Price, Andrew McCutcheon, Mike Moustakas, and Max Scherzer were all ranked lower than Jabba. Austin Jackson, Ian Kennedy, and Jesus Montero were all high on prospect boards and in the Yankee system. Phil Hughes, while he was no longer ranked as a prospect, was going to be a cornerstone of the Yankees' rotation for years to come. The man responsible for building that farm system was Cashman, and with his contract expiring after the 08 season, the Yankees were not about to let him go. This is Tim Kirkjian on SportsCenter on September 30th, 2008. I don't think the Yankees wanted to let him get away because despite not making the playoffs this year, they understand one thing. They have kept those young players in their system because of the plan that Brian Cashman put in place, and it's going to make the Yankees better years down the line. Kirkjian and others were right, even if everyone, including Cashman, was wrong about those young players. Cashman had built better and more stable baseball operations over the past few years, and transitioning to a new GM at this time did not make any sense for the organization. If we're going to fault Cashman, it should be over what he did with those players in the farm system. Going back to that prior winter, there was an opportunity in November 2007 for the Yankees to pivot from re-signing A-Rod to trading for Miguel Cabrera. The Marlins made it clear that Phil Hughes, Jabba Chamberlain, or Ian Kennedy would need to be in any trade but the Yankees were not willing to move them. There's an article that was dated November 7th, 2007 in the Daily News titled Yankees Want Miguel Cabrera Won't Trade Big Three Pitchers. I honestly laughed at that headline. 
It's kind of hard to be taking seriously on a trade for the best position player of the offseason if you're not willing to move any of your top three pitching prospects. I understand not wanting to trade all of them, but not even a one is is laughable. Hindsight is 2020, but even if it were blind, trading one of those pitchers plus other pieces for Miggy seemed like a no-brainer. But Cabrera wasn't the biggest piece the Yankees were in on that winter. In February 2008, the Mets acquired Johan Santana from the Twins for a package centered around Carlos Gomez. Santana had a year left with a no-trade clause, but was willing to waive it if the trade came with an extension. Hank Steinbrenner was at the forefront by this time and really wanted to get the deal done. As we discussed, the Yankees were desperate for starting pitching, and it was clear that another reunion with Roger Clemens was not the solution. It was a framework with Hughes as the center, but Cashman talked the Steinbrenners out of it. Jabba was apparently always off the table, and Ian Kennedy was not enough for the Twins. At the end of January that year, Joel Sherman reported for the New York Post that the Yankees were the frontrunners, and the package to the Twins was Hughes, Melky Cabrera, Jeff Marquez, and Mitch Hilgoss. By the end of it, the Twins even gave the Yankees an option without Hughes, Kennedy plus Ming Wong, but the Yankees didn't want to do that either. Cashman wasn't going to trade two rotation pieces for just one, even if that one piece was elite. Looking at the Cabrera and Santana deals in a vacuum, Cashman looks like a fool. But understanding the larger context is important. He just spent years building the farm system back from rubble because it was decimated to keep the dynasty going from 1999 to 2004. Cashman wasn't about to make those same mistakes again. The Yankees kept their young talent, but watched it fail at the major league level throughout the 2008 season. After the year ended, Cashman and the Yankees quickly agreed on a three-year extension, and then hit the free agent market hard. Cashman knew his legacy was on the line. He said, If I left, I wasn't going to like the story that was going to be written because it wasn't going to be an accurate depiction of my time here. I'm not going to let an inaccurate story stick. And the only way for me to change that is to change the story. So I'm staying to change the story. CeCe Sabathia, $161 million. Mark Teixeira, $180 million. AJ Burnett, $82.5 million. The Yankees had a new stadium to open and a championship to win. Part 6. Back on top. The massive spending spree ahead of the 09 season was surprisingly championed by Cashman. The Sabathia negotiations were done solely by Cashman, not the Steinbrenners, which was unusual for a free agent of CeCe's magnitude. CeCe needed to be convinced on pitching for the Yankees. In an interesting twist, Cashman didn't just want CeCe for the impact he would make on the mound. He also wanted CeCe to lead the culture change in the clubhouse. From an outsider's perspective, CC rightfully assumed the Yankees clubhouse was led by Derek Jeter, which it was. But the clubhouse problem that Cashman noticed, the stuffy corporate-like environment with crippling amounts of pressure to win a championship or else everything else is a failure, was not going to change without someone like CC. One record-setting contract later, and Sabathia was in pinstripes. CC wasn't the only positive impact on the clubhouse that offseason. They, of course, also signed A.J. Burnett, along with Nick Swisher, made the shaving cream pies famous on walk-off days. The Swisher acquisition was one of the best examples of the analytics department leading the charge to acquire key cogs for the machine. Chief analytics nerd Michael Fishman brought Swisher's name to Cashman in a scene stolen straight out of Moneyball. He said, how would you like to acquire the second most unlucky player in baseball? Is how Fishman pitched Swisher to Cashman. The scouting department did not feel the same way about Swisher as the analytics department did, but Cashman took a chance and it paid off. Wilson Bediment, Jeff Marquez, and Johnny Nunez were sent to the White Sox for Swisher, who ended up having a fantastic year 
playing a much bigger role than anyone anticipated. The winter was not done, however. The final missing piece in Cashman's mind was an elite first baseman that could make an impact on both sides of the ball. There was one clear name to be had, Mark Teixeira. With all the money and moves already made, Steinbrenner was not easily convinced to sign another major free agent. It took Cashman 45 days to sway Hal to sign off on the deal, and the Yankees swooped in to sign Teixeira away from Boston, Baltimore, Washington, and the other teams he was negotiating with. The 09 Yankees were a juggernaut. All-stars and MVPs up and down the lineup, multiple switch hitters for balance, elite starting pitching, and the best closer in history. It all added up to a parade in early November. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Part 7. Try not to repeat your mistakes. In researching for this podcast, I found it interesting that Hal had to be convinced by Cashman to go big in free agency before the 09 season, especially when you consider the fact that Cashman had spent the last few years building the farm system, baseball ops, and analytics departments. I would have assumed it was an ownership reaction to the Yankees missing the postseason and them wanting to open a new stadium on the right foot. But Cashman recognized the opportunity to win again with the Jeter, Moe, Pettit, Posada core by adding those key free agents. I don't think anyone regrets the Yankees spending that winter, but we would look back on that era a whole lot differently had they won a second title. The team was still great in 2010 through 2012, but fell short each year. By the end, it was clear that the aging superstars had finally gotten old and the prospects that everyone touted in 2008 had not panned out. Cashman attempted to make acquisitions to keep things going, but was still prospect-hugging. In 2010, they almost got Cliff Lee for the first time. On July 9th, the Yankees and Mariners had a deal in place that would send Lee to the Bronx for Jesus Montero, David Adams, and Zach McAllister. Adams ended up having issues with his medicals, so the Yankees offered Adam Warren instead. The Mariners countered with either Eduardo Nunez or Ivan Nova instead of Warren. Cashman was not willing to give up those prospects, though. Lee was eventually traded to Texas, who beat the Yankees in the ALCS, where Lee threw eight scoreless innings against them in Game 3, and that was a pivotal Game 3 that swung the series in favor for the Rangers. After the 2010 season ended in disappointment, the winter got ugly. Jeter's contract was up, and he was seeking a new deal that would pay him upwards of $100 million until he was 40 years old, since, you know, A-Rod was earning that. The Yankees initially offered $45 million over three years, a gift for a fading icon, as Joel Sherman put it. It was clear the two sides were way off. We're not paying extra money for popularity. We're paying for performance, is what Cashman said publicly. 
Cashman and the Yankees made this negotiation public, which angered Jeter. uh, You know, if I'm going to be honest with you guys, the thing that probably bothered me the most was how public this became. You know, this was a a negotiations. The negotiations were supposed to be private. So um, I was in an uncomfortable position. I felt that I was in. It's it's not it was not an enjoyable experience because I've I've you know, throughout the years I've prided myself on keeping things out of the papers and out of the media and this turned into uh a big public thing. So that was something I was not I was not happy about and you know, I let my feelings be known. Cashman told Jeter to openly go test the market. Famously, Jeter asked Cashman who he would rather have playing shortstop. Cashman answered honestly, listing all the top shortstops at the time. You should shop it. Whether it was going to be a better offer out there or not, you know, we would find out. That's the art of the negotiation, right? Brian Cashman says, well, he should drink the reality potion, which, you know, was just an amazing quote. And I know for a fact that it stung Derek a little bit. This was supposed to be the easiest negotiation ever. But somehow you've gotten past Thanksgiving and Derek Jeter's still not a Yankee. Seemed a little unbelievable. We have a powwow in Tampa. You know, there's now blood on both sides bleeding out. The second meeting that I had, Cash is going back and forth about, I don't deserve this, or I don't deserve that. And I said to him, I said, well, tell me who you'd rather have. I had no interest in having the conversation that he asked to have. So I usually answer the question, do you really want me to answer that? But he asked the question and I, you know, I was charged with answering it because he wanted an answer. And so I did. I rolled off Roy Tulowitzki and Hanley Ramirez, the top two best shortstops in baseball at the time. Because at this stage, Derek wasn't in the top echelon of shortstops in the game anymore. That's not the name I heard, but he said Hanley Ramirez. I didn't think Cash would answer the question, but he answered the question. And when you have someone that's your boss tell you that they'd rather have somebody, you never forget the name that comes out of their mouth. And I said, I'm not going to sit here and listen to this shit. What you just heard was from the press conference announcing Jeter's new deal in spring 2011, and then from ESPN's The Captain documentary. The gap between the Yankees and Jeter stemmed from a few things, but at the root of it was that Jeter was not the same player he used to be, despite his offense still being elite. Cashman had issues with Jeter's defense dating back to 2006. Although Jeter denies it, Cashman apparently had Torrey speak to Jeter about his declining range and a possible move to the outfield which is more context to the disconnect that Cashman recognized existed in the clubhouse between Torrey and his players. Because if Joe Torrey was not willing to have a tough conversation with Jeter, then really what good was he? In 2007, Cashman invited Jeter to a dinner where he told him he needed to improve his lateral movement if he wanted to remain at short. While Jeter did improve after that, he was still a 36-year-old playing one of the most demanding positions on the diamond. They eventually agreed. A three-year, $51 million deal eventually got finalized, but the damage was done the next time Jeter would negotiate directly with Steinbrenner. Part 8. The Twilight Years Over the next few years, Cashman and ownership continued to butt heads. From the start, Cashman was against signing Rafael Soriano because he felt it was not wise to spend big money on a setup man who also cost them a draft pick. It's ironic when you consider how the team was constructed just a few years later. The deal between the Yankees and Soriano was negotiated directly by Randy Levine, which struck me as odd. Levine often sticks his nose in business it shouldn't be in, usually offending someone in the process, but I wasn't aware he was directly negotiating with free agents. On the signing, Levine said that the club is running a, quote, $5 billion business and has a, quote, sacred obligation to its fans. 
He went on to praise Cashman as the best GM in the game and downplayed any rift between the two. Keep in mind, this was the 2010-11 to winter, and Cashman's contract was up yet again after the season. Some other moves Cashman was against include re-signing Ichiro after the 2012 season. Ichiro was pretty terrible over the next two years. Not re-signing Russell Martin following the 2012 season, who ended up signing a very reasonable contract to play in Pittsburgh. Chris Stewart had to catch 100 games for the 2013 Yankees. Trading for Alfonso Soriano during the 2013 season. About this move, Cashman said, I would say we are in a desperate time. Ownership wants to go for it. I didn't want to give up a young arm, but I understand the desperate need we have for offense, and Soriano will help us. The bottom line is this guy makes us better. Did ownership want him? Absolutely yes. Does he make us better? Absolutely yes. This is what Hal wants, and this is why we are doing it. Yet another blunt statement from Cashman. The young arm they gave up, Corey Black, never made it out of the minors, and Soriano electrified the Yankees' offense in the 58 games he played. That didn't change the fact that the team finished in third place and Cashman and ownership disagreed on yet another baseball decision. You can call 2013 rock bottom. Jeter only played 17 games due to his ankle injury he suffered in the 2012 ALCS. Teixeira injured his wrist in the WBC and only played 15 games. Granderson was hit by a pitch in spring training by Jay Happ, which sidelined him until May, only to be hit by another pitch when he returned, breaking his pinky. Grandy was only able to play 61 games. Then there was A-Rod. The team knew he would be out for months with a hip injury, so they signed Kevin Euclid to a one-year deal, but he suffered two separate injuries, wiping him out for the season. In June, Cashman told the media that A-Rod has not been cleared by team doctors to play in rehab games, but he is getting closer. The next day, A-Rod tweeted, Visit from Dr. Kelly over the weekend who gave me the best news, the green light to play games again. Cashman responded, and I'm quoting from an ESPN article. You know what? When the Yankees want to announce something, we will. Alex should just shut the fuck up. That's it. I'm going to call Alex now. Arod did return to play 44 games, but it was too little too late. That offseason, things didn't get any better. Robbie Cano, unquestionably the Yankees' best player at the time, was a free agent. To that point, Yankees fans were used to the team retaining their superstars, and surely the Yankees would pony up the dollars to sign Cano. They ended up offering him $175 million over seven years, significantly less than the $240 million in 10-year deal he got from Seattle. Cashman was vocal that he did not want to do another A-Rod contract, which by this time had become a nightmare for the Yankees. The odd thing about the 13-14 offseason is that the Yankees were planning on spending money, it just wasn't going to be on Cano. Brian McCann was brought in for $85 million. Jacoby Ellsbury was signed for $153 million, perhaps the biggest overpayment of Cashman's tenure. Carlos Beltran was $45 million. The best move of the winter was Masahiro Tanaka, who signed for $155 million. That's $438 million in free agent contracts if you're keeping track at home. Now, let's discuss these moves for a bit. Jacoby Ellsbury was clearly a reaction to the Yankees not signing Cano, no matter what anyone in the Yankees front office says. $153 million was a ridiculous amount for Ellsbury at the time. Even if he was coming off very good seasons with Boston, I'll never figure out how he hit 32 home runs in 2011, but I'm sure Cashman believed that some of that power would translate to Yankee Stadium. It didn't. Carlos Beltran finally became a Yankee, 10 years too late. The Yankees were in need of a corner outfielder. They nearly signed Sinshu Chu for $140 million, 
and that was even after signing Ellsbury. But Chu's agent, Scott Boris, wanted to beat Carl Crawford's deal by $1 million from the previous winter, and the Yankees would not bite. Brian McCann was definitely a good catcher, but had the team just retained Russell Martin following the 2012 season, they could have had a much cheaper and just as productive solution at catcher. Tanaka was a great signing despite the injuries he suffered. We all love Tanaka and the Yankees would redo that deal 100 times out of 100. After all of that spending, the Yankees still had a glaring problem, an all-star size hole at second base. Brian Roberts was brought in to replace Cano. Free agents weren't enough to cover up the deficiencies in other areas and the team stunk. They finished 12 games behind Baltimore in the division and the only reason to watch in the second half that year was to say goodbye to Jeter. As an aside, I do wonder what would have happened had Jeter not broken his ankle in the 2012 playoffs. Jeter that year led the league in hits and finished 7th in MVP. He was injured all of 13 and was a shell of himself in 14. There's no reason to think he wouldn't still have been a productive hitter in 2013 and 2014 had he just stayed healthy. And if that were the case, would he have kept playing? How would the Yankees have navigated his final years had it dragged into, say, 2015 or 2016? At what point would they have moved him from shortstop? A part of me is kind of glad that messy situation didn't end up happening because it would have been a war between Cashman and Jeter. Part 9. Cashman's Legacy Cashman signed another extension despite missing the playoffs in consecutive years. In a sliding doors moment, the Yankees and Braves were seriously considering a blockbuster trade that would have changed both franchises forever. The Yankees were to acquire Jason Hayward, who only had one year left on his contract, Angelton Simmons, David Carpenter, Melvin, BJ Upton, and Chris Johnson for, no, wait for this package, Ian Clarkin, Manny Benuelos, Gary Sanchez, Luis Severino, and Aaron Judge. Finally, Cashman's prospect hugging paid off. 2015 was a surprisingly good season. The team did seem to have a direction, even though they were still winning with their old talent. Acquisitions in this time frame included Randy McCarthy, Martin Prado, Chase Headley, Nathan Avaldi, and Didi Gregorius. With Jeter retired, the Yankees had a need at shortstop for the first time in 20 years. Based on Cashman's comments at the time, he did not expect Didi to blossom into the player he became for the Yankees, but he still deserves credit for that and other moves that helped the team be more competitive despite its ancient roster. Because the team was better than anyone expected, the Yankees were actually buyers at the deadline. They were in on David Price and Cole Hamels, but ultimately said no to both deals because the asking price was too high. Again, teams wanted Severino and Judge. The 2015 Yankees ultimately fizzled out because its age caught up to it, but credit to Cashman for recognizing that the season was a bit of a fluke and trading its future for short-term upgrades was not worth it. Two decades earlier, Judge is out the door for Cole Hamels, who would not have been enough for another ring in 2015. The Yankees didn't just run it back and hope to catch lightning in a bottle again in 2016. They acquired Starling Castro and Aaron Hicks and formed a downright scary bullpen by adding Araldis Chapman. But the team got off to a much worse start. A-Rod and Teixeira, who were great in 2015, were bad, and by August, the Yankees were hosting a retirement ceremony for A-Rod. The next day, they welcomed Aaron Judge to the majors. That final stretch in 2016 was actually a ton of fun. Gary Sanchez, who was called up a bit earlier than Judge, was Babe Ruth. The team seemed to come to life. It wasn't enough to make the playoffs, but with the moves that Cashin made at the deadline to acquire Glaber Torres, Jackson, don't call him Clint Frazier, Justice Sheffield, and other prospects, the Yankees were building a young core that the fan base was excited about. Selling at the deadline, even though the Yankees that year called it retooling, was not an easy decision for the Steinbrenners. 
The day before the deadline, the Yankees lost to the Rays, their third loss in a row. They were in fourth place and six and a half games back. Just before midnight, Hal called Cashman and gave him the go-ahead to trade away more pieces. Andrew Miller was shipped to Cleveland the very next day. Ahead of the 2017 season, the Yankees shed Brian McCann to Houston and re-signed Chapman. The team came into its own with Judge as its leader. Despite narrowly missing the World Series, Cashman decided to move on from Joe Girardi. In my mind, this move is when Cashman really put his stamp on the organization. Putting aside if Boone was a good hire or not, it was 100% Cashman's decision. Ownership trusted Cashman enough to make this move even though the team outperformed anyone's expectations under Girardi. Cash thought that the young talent, Severino, Judge, Glaber, and most importantly, Gary Sanchez, would not reach their full potential if Girardi was rehired. Boone was touted as a great communicator and would take the baseball operations and analytics input in making game day and on-field decisions. Boone was Cashman's guy. Boone wasn't the only new face in pinstripes in 2018. Reigning NL MVP Giancarlo Stanton was acquired in a salary dump by Jeter's Marlins. The lineup now featured three of the most powerful right-handed bats in baseball, Stanton, Judge, and Sanchez. In the words of Cashman, the Yankees were now a, quote, fully operational Death Star. It's just too bad that the Death Star blew up. Twice. The team was embarrassed by the Red Sox in the playoffs. They lost again to Houston the next year. 2020 was completely lost. 2021 was actually a bigger step back, and 2022 was two-faced, ultimately ending with the Astros celebrating in their face for the third time in six years. The common theme in all of these seasons was falling short of expectations. Part 10. Loyalty. Cashman just signed a new contract this offseason. Who knows how close Cashman was to actually leaving, but this contract seemed to be the most in doubt. Will this be his last with the Yankees? If the team falls short over the next four years, will ownership finally make a change, or will Cashman realize it's time to move on? Ultimately, in doing this podcast, I've learned that Cashman is a loyal guy. Or maybe he still feels like he needs to change the story written about him. There's only one way to do that. Thanks for listening.